Today we're going to go to Genesis chapter 32, and we're brought to an account of a man who is known as the heel grabber. He's the one known for stealing the blessing from his brother, but he is also known as the overcomer. Genesis 32, verse 22. Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob did not let go. He struggled and fought with God until he overcame. We must do the exact same thing. Specifically with regards to dealing head-on with enmity towards God. Romans 8.6 says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. The sinful mind is enmity to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The sinful mind is enmity to God. Sin is rebellion against God, and the root of that rebellion is hostility. As it was discussed by Pastor Ray last week, we have to be awakened and convicted. And once we come to this place of awakening, We have to first deal with how offensive it is. I don't know about you, but it's quite the bitter pill to swallow, to take responsibility for hostility towards Jesus. The same Jesus who you love, the same Jesus who's your savior, the same Jesus who is your father, who's your redeemer, who's your husband, So once we swallow that bitter pill and accept it and begin to take responsibility for it, we must repent, asking Jesus to give us the eyes to see every single area where this hostility is present. It's in this place where we can begin to make the transition from enmity with God to enmity with our sin. The truth is, Jesus must be bigger than your complaint. Jesus must be bigger 
than your lust for money, bigger than your anger, bigger than your pride and your arrogance, bigger than looking upon violence and enjoying it, bigger than lusting after the flesh, bigger than your pain, bigger than your fear, where we come to this place where we truly desire and desperately need Jesus more than our sin, where something inside of us rises up in complete disgust over this enmity, this hostility towards Jesus, where we begin to take actions out of obedience and reverence for him, where our feelings and emotions follow our actions, not the other way around. We've spoken about this before, but Isaiah 26 says, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, whose mind leans on you, because he trusts in you. So the decisions we make every day must be made out of obedience and submission to Jesus, not based on our emotions and how we feel. Standing this way every single day, Asking Jesus to give us the eyes and the ears to bring the conviction where we can come into agreement with him. This specifically is when we transition to Genesis 3.15, where we stand in hatred towards our sin. The root of the bitter root is hostility towards Jesus. Because We can't go to Genesis 3.15. We can. We can definitely attempt it. And we can stand on that promise. But my experience is maybe it'll work for a month that Jesus will give me such hatred for that sin. But if there's still underlying hostility with God, it's going to come right back like a roaring lion. So we first deal with this enmity towards God by struggling in the prayer closet until we overcome like Jacob did. We stand with hatred towards our sin. And when we do this, let's watch how the power of God comes and completely removes it from your heart for good. The blood of Jesus truly does wash away our sin. It's not this far off idea or myth Everything Jesus has ever said is true. And he says it over and over and over. Get up. Do you want to be well? Well, stand up and walk and turn away from your sin. I mean, over and over and over, there's accounts in the word of this. So we have to stand firm. We have to believe Jesus without moving. We stay in the prayer closet until it's finished. First Chronicles 28 says, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God. My God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work of the temple of the Lord is finished. You are the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and Jesus will not leave you if you do not give up. Do not turn away. You stand amidst the pain and the suffering. Obey Jesus. Submit to him. Don't let go until the work is finished. And then we will stand in the place of victory as individuals, as a church, as a family, 
and Jesus will free us from our sin once and for all. It'll be done. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the work to be done. The message today is entitled The Unfinished Work. The Unfinished Work. Almighty God, as we study your word today, would you open it before us and give us understanding? Mighty God, would you come and deal with our hearts and let the work of the gospel be finished in us? I pray in your holy name. Amen. Until the work of grieving has been completed, we will be held and unable to function in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That work must be finished. We find a story in the Old Testament that begins to open for us an understanding of what that work really is about. In Judges, the 10th chapter, and I tell you, there are two books in the Bible that cause me heartburn every time I read them. One is the book of Isaiah because of the extreme righteousness of this man, Isaiah. The other is the book of Judges, which shows the constant returning to wickedness in the lives of God's people. In Judges, the 10th chapter, we find that again the Israelites are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's be specific. What do I mean? They are going to false gods and bowing down before them. They are burning their children. Today we don't burn children, we just have them aborted. We burn them with chemicals. This is happening all through America. And many of the women who have the abortions would say that they are Christians. This evil is again in the land. Because the Israelites left the Lord and no longer served him, the Lord became angry with them. We don't think of God as a real person often. We think of him as perhaps a computer power. But it's personal with God. He is real. And I as an individual can act in ways that will cause the God of heaven to become angry with me. And as a people, as a church, we can operate in a way that will cause God to be angry with the church and to shut down the church. He's done it many times. Revelation, the messages to the churches. He says, if you do not repent, I will come and take the lampstand from among you so you can continue having your religious practices, but I will not be in the midst of you. And so everything that's going to happen now in the church will happen by human flesh skill. And so the modern American church has gone to the entertainment. They've gone to the show and the show biz. And so you have churches in America today where the presence of God is absent, but the show goes on. And God can become angry with a nation. And we have had revealed to us in the last two weeks the incredible understanding that our president and his secretary of state personally were involved in the strategy and the implementation of that strategy to fund and train ISIS. 
that is so evil, I can't begin to express my grief for America. So America is responsible before God for the murder of countless Christians and Azidis and Muslims, raping of children, torture, unimaginable things that have been going on. All of that comes back and rests on the American government which has made God exceedingly angry with America. And when God becomes angry with a nation, the righteous and the unrighteous suffer together in the judgment that God brings on that nation. And we are now seeing those judgments beginning to be poured out upon this nation with a financial collapse We're going to see a bond market explosion. The southwest of our nation will soon be uninhabitable because of the mega drought. Las Vegas will become a ghost town. The fertile fields of California will not produce any longer. There will be no water. Lake Mead is dropping so quickly there will no longer be any water that we can take out of the Colorado River. Los Angeles will become uninhabitable because there will be no water. These are judgments, famine, drought, wild beasts, always in Scripture, pestilence. These are always the judgments that God brings against a nation. These are his tools of judgment. And we are beginning to see those tools of judgment being exercised against our nation. Now, because they forsook God and they worshiped the wicked gods of the nations surrounding them, they were in such agony and such pain, they said, We have sinned against you, we have forsaken our God. And we are serving the Baals. The Baal God is the prosperity God. We are so engaged in making money that we have forgotten God. We have made him the second place. And we're worshiping other things. And so they cry out to God. And he responds in verse 11. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Monas oppressed you, and you cried out for me to help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. So God says, Go to your false gods. Go to your televisions and pray to them. Go to your cell phones and try praying to your cell phone. Your cell phone has captured your heart. Go ahead and pray to it. I believe you're going to see Americans walking around like this all the time. That's the attitude of prayer, isn't it? Where you bow your heads. I mean, I've actually had to tell people in the midst of a church meeting, please turn your cell phones off. Because the cell phone is their savior. 
And God is saying, okay, go pray to your cell phones. Pray to your television. Pray to your internet. Pray to your bankers. Go ahead and pray to anything you need to pray to. I'm not going to help you. You're on your own here. I'm cutting you loose. I can't imagine anything more time than for the God of heaven to cut me loose. The Israelites said to the Lord in verse 15, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us. Okay, God, enough, uncle. We get it. We're going to turn back to you. Now do with us whatever you want to do with us. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. The Lord could not bear Israel's misery any longer. In other words, in the midst of their sin, they were so utterly miserable. God said, I can't stand it. That's coming in America. Where God is going to look at the misery and the arrogance of this nation and say, I can't stand this any longer. And he's going to begin to act. And frankly, in my lifetime, there has been no real public demonstration of God's power. There's been the power of everybody else, but not God's power. Well, God's power is going to begin to show up. And it's going to be terrifying, but also glorious. Are you ready for God to show up? What would you do if God shows up in your life? He's going to show up in your life. He's going to show up in this church. I got a letter from a lady yesterday. She said, in the last two weeks, my life has been completely changed. She said, I started listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I never heard it before. And I began to hear that I could leave my sin, that I didn't have to walk in this any longer. She said, I've never heard this before in my life. I've always been told that you could be saved, but you're going to always be a sinner. She said, I'm walking in such joy because my sin is forgiven, and I'm not walking in it anymore. I said, Lord, it's been a good thing for me to be off the air for two weeks. Maybe if I'm off for two more weeks, more people will get the word. <laughs> Lord. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. One of these righteous Israelite men had a habit of going to prostitutes. And he got a prostitute pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. His name was Jephthah. But the other sons of this man, as they grew up, said, you're not from our mother, so we're throwing you out. You do not get any of dad's inheritance. Get out of here. And they threatened him. So this young man, unacknowledged by his father or his brother's, left Israel, went to another land. And there he, in his anger, became a warrior, a charismatic warrior. And he gathered around him a whole group of others who were also angry men. They became a powerful, marauding force. The leadership 
the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah when the Ammonites were coming against them and said, would you come and would you lead the army of our country and would you be our savior? He said, why are you talking to me? You threw me out. I'll come and I'll help you and then you're just going to throw me out again. And they swore an oath and said, we will not throw you out again. You will be the head of our country. So Jephthah goes back. It would have been interesting to me to hear the conversation between Jephthah, now the head of the country, and his brothers who threw him out. He is now their commander-in-chief. He tries to logically talk with the king of Ammon. He got nowhere. They came against them. Jephthah, in his desperate desire to be accepted by his people, Success was everything to Jephthah. He'd been thrown out. He was the son of a prostitute. He had no dignity. And now finally he has a chance to establish his power. So he said, okay, I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my door if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, God. It was a foolish vow. It was a sinful vow. And when he comes back from destroying the Ammonites, his daughter comes out the door first. Verse 34 of chapter 11, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of the tambourines? She was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills And weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. I hate this story. hate everything about it. But I am confronted by Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah's daughter understood that her life was over, that her father was going to offer her on the altar a burnt offering. Her life was over. She was not going to marry. She was not going to live and prosper. Her life was finished. And so for two months... She wept with her friends over the loss of her life. Now, what strikes me so heavily in the heart is that this young woman, who understood she must take these two months to grieve, to be ready for her father to do what he promised God he would do, is a symbol, a sign of the work we must do. And many of us have postponed this work 
year after year after year. And the work is to recognize that when I come to Jesus Christ, I surrender my life. And I must do the work of grieving for the loss of my life if I'm ever going to have the fullness of Jesus functioning within my soul. If I'm going to be something other than just religious. There must be a recognition that my life is over. Ended. And I must do the work in preparation for the ending of my life by going through the grieving process, knowing that I am giving up all control and authority over my life. I am giving it into the hand of Jesus Christ. And he will rule over me. Now, the journey does not necessarily take a long time. But we make it take a long time because of the rebellious spirit that rises up in us that says, all right, I'll have you, Jesus, but I'm still in charge. (laughs) And the enmity, the hatred we have toward God is the understanding that finally dawns on our soul that Jesus wants it all. That we can no longer think to ourselves Jesus is going to bless me and prosper me while I am still in charge of my life. That is to not do what Jephthah's daughter did, which is to go and grieve over the loss of my life. And I ask you honestly, have you grieved over the loss of your life before God? The giving up of the authority over your life. Have you given up being successful? Have you given up being in charge? Have you given up the illusion that you are God? Have you made the choice that Jesus Christ shall rule and reign over me? Now, the first place, as I've shared before, that Jesus comes to begin to dig up the the fallow ground is in the prayer closet. Some of you don't want to even pray. You're uncomfortable. You're bored by prayer. I can tell you why you're bored with prayer. Because you're dishonest with God. When you get honest with God and you begin to let him deal with the inner desire to be God and to push him off the throne, when you begin to deal with that, suddenly prayer becomes very juicy and alive. Because you now recognize you are in a a life and death struggle with Almighty God. Who is going to rule in your life? This last week, I asked one of you, what's happening with you? And the answer was so sharp. God is trying to grow up my inner child. Woo! See, God can't grow up the inner child in our heart as long as we insist on that child being able to throw a temper tantrum and control. Now, I tried many times as a child to throw a temper tantrum and thereby be able to control my dad and my mom. 
I am blessed with the fact that they would neither one allow that to happen. But I will admit that when my mother would try to spank me, I learned very quickly that I could run around her and that would flip her around and around and she'd get dizzy and had to stop spanking me. While my dad, when he would come home, would hear what I had done and he would put out his big leg and put me right up against that big leg and there wasn't anywhere to go. It was time to be dealt with. Well, God has a big leg. And he wants to deal with us. He wants us to submit so that we can begin to grow up into men and women of God who have authority and power in the spirit realm. And so he will bring every kind of uncovering and every kind of testing because God wants to grow up his inner child. Now I tell you, I knew exactly what I wanted when I was a child. If you had said to me, Raymond, what do you want? I had a whole list of things I wanted. And I did all kinds of things to get it. I'd go to the junkyard with my little red wagon. And I would pick bottles. And I would walk those bottles, pulling it in that wagon. I would have to cushion them so they would not break. They were glass. And I would walk two and a half miles, three miles, to a grocery store over a dirt road where they would trade in my glass bottles so that I could spend all of my money on candy because mom and dad said no candy. And I would have to have it consumed by the time they came home. So it was often an all-day process of gathering my bottles, walking them to the store, buying my candy, and then in absolute delight, eating myself sick. But I'd had my candy. Some of you remind me of that. You'll go to the ends of the earth to collect your bottles and feast on the demon powers. And then you're sick in the stomach And you call me. It's time to grow up. Brother Ed was right. It's time to grow up. It's time to begin to understand there is a work of grieving that is necessary. Coming to awareness and a work of grieving. I read for you out of the book of James, the first chapter, verse 21. Therefore, having already taken off all moral uncleanness and residue of depravity, in humility you must receive the engrafted word, the one being able to save your soul. That's a process. We have to come to a place where we are willing to part with our moral uncleanness where we are willing to give up the depravity. And immediately, if we give up our moral uncleanness, we stop lying. We stop cheating. We stop lusting. How do we do that? By dying. 
by giving it to Jesus Christ, by recognizing that everything goes to him. And as we go through that process, the result will be a man or woman who is humble before God. The greatest pain I, as your pastor, have had to suffer for you is your pride. When I think of my sister Alicia, several things come immediately to my heart. One, rejoicing that she is getting healed. Two, praying that she will not fail on her diet and ask her husband to go buy her chips and other foods that are going to poison her system. The weight has to go. It's killing her. Am I right? What I do not think about when I think of my sister Alicia is a list of things that I think she's been doing wrong. I have no judgment in my heart toward her. I just have compassionate love. In fact, with all of you, there's not one of you in this room that I have any list against. I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you'd change. I wish you'd this. I wish you'd that. If you just do it, then I don't have that list in my heart about you. What breaks my heart is a man or woman who will listen to a sermon that I've given under the Spirit of God and get angry with me and disappear in their pride because they don't want to humble their heart. And then they have a list of things. I mean, one woman came a number of years ago and sat down. She was my worship leader. She came and sat down with me. And she said, Pastor, I can't stand how I feel about you. I said, why? She took out her notebook. And she had page after page after page of offenses that I had committed against her. How could I deal with pages of offenses? I said, my dear, I think you need to go to another church where you can start a new book of offense against that pastor. And then when you're finished there, go to another church and start another list. Or else, you need to just throw all your lists out and repent for your judgment and your pride. Pride in the human heart is what we use to escape the need to finish the work of grieving for our lost life. And so we blame others, we accuse, we judge, because we're not willing to die. A husband... Wife, you have to do this, and you have to be like this, and you can't say that. And the wife, husband, if you just do it the way I want you to do it, everything would work well. And if you'd just get your act cleaned up, and if you'd stop 
talking that way and acting, and on and on, miles of expectations. Sure sign that a person has not been willing to grieve over their sin is a list of expectations and demands for their husband or their wife. God didn't come to us that way. He came to us in love. He came to us in compassion. He calls us to come in love and compassion with one another. He calls us to lay our pride down and to grieve for the life we will never have. Be honest with you, when I was a young man, what I wanted more than anything else, being the youngest of three brothers who beat me up regularly, what I wanted more than anything else was to show them up by becoming much more successful than they could ever dream of. I wanted to be somebody. And when I began to understand the the call and the demand of the cross of Jesus Christ, I had to lay down all of my expectations that I was ever going to be anybody. I had to give up the hope that I could outdo my brothers. I had to give up the idea that I was the man. That I was God. That I was going to ascend to the seat of the high. Has anyone ever treated you worse than you deserved? No. You have deserved much worse than anybody could have ever treated you. To be honest with you, I've said worse things about me than anybody else could possibly say about me. Part of the pain of my heart is my pride. Looking back over my life, recognizing the sin of my heart that sometimes found fruition in full action and other times was repressed, but only because I couldn't get away with it. Laziness, insolence, dishonesty. How can I ever atone for my past? I can't. So it's a good thing for me to die. Because dead men are only a faint memory. We're called to grieve for our death that it can finally be finished fully and completely in our hearts that only Jesus lives in us. I've been crucified with Christ, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. My life's over. I belong to Jesus.
He says, therefore, having already taken off all moral uncleanness and the residue of depravity, in humility you must receive the engrafted word. Jesus Christ is the engrafted word. And without that engrafted word, you are going to die. So let's get it done quickly. Let's get it finished. Let's get rid of the pride. Let's get rid of the demand that I be respected, that I be somebody, that I have rights. Let's get rid of it. Now you must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then over in chapter 4, from where comes wars and fights among you? Is it not from this out from your passions or as soldiers making war in your members? Our pride marshals itself against anyone who would dare to question our godhood. And when Jesus Christ comes, our hearts rise up. And he doesn't meet our expectations and he doesn't meet our demands. And it looks like he's in the way of our moving forward. And so we begin to judge one another and we begin to cut one another off. And we begin to say, I have to have my way here. My survival is based on my going forward and doing what I want to do. No, it's not. Your survival is based on your finishing the work of grieving and utterly dying to yourself and allowing Jesus Christ to take over. You lust and have not. You murder and boil with anger. You are not able to obtain. You are quarrelsome and make war. You have not because you ask not. You ask and you do not receive because you are asking wrongly that in your pleasure you may spend freely. Adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with reference to God? Consequently, whoever may wish to be a friend of the world is made an enemy of God. Oh, I am pleading in this church that we finally get clear Are we with God or are we with the world? You can't be for both. You're either for the Lord or you're against the Lord. You're either an enemy of God and a friend of the world, or you have divorced the world. You've cut it off. And then he makes these statements. Verse 7, therefore you must be subject to God. You must resist the devil and he will flee from you. You must draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You must cleanse your hands, you sinners. You must purify your hearts, you double-minded. You must lament and mourn and weep. If you have not lamented and mourned and wept, over your sin, you have not finished the grieving work 
in your life. It is necessary. It is the way God humbles a man or a woman's heart that they can be healed in the spirit and given power and authority in the spirit to carry out the work of Christ in the world. Let your laughter be changed to mourning and your joy to heaviness. You must humble before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then over in 1 John, and we will close with this. 1 John, the first chapter, verse 9. If we may be in agreement with God with respect to our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he may remove the sins with reference to us and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. Will we agree with God about the need for us to let this life go? Will we come into agreement with God about our need to grieve and mourn over the wickedness of our hearts? Will we let him deal with our pride? If we will, he will cleanse us. He will purify us. The work of grieving over the loss of our life must be finished. The old timers talked about praying through and rejoicing and there would be explosive joy as they would break through and finally know in their hearts that the work of grieving was done and they were free. I can't compete with them. They're too cute and they're too precious. Are you willing to agree with God about your sin? That he could bring you into the explosive place of victory and joy and cleanness. And I want to just say, please, there is no greater joy that can come to a man or woman's heart than to know that finally they are fully on the altar and their pride is laid down. They have grieved for their lost life, and they now rejoice in their new life in Christ Jesus. I'm looking for a whole church that is rejoicing in the new life in Christ Jesus. A people made righteous by the blood of Christ. A people set free a people who know the way of the cross is the way to the heart of God. 
Almighty God. This week, would you do whatever is necessary in the heart of every person here who has not finished the work of grieving over the loss of their life? And Lord, would you begin to bring an explosive joy into this church of victory over all sin, having laid down all expectations and demands and trusting now in your divine power that it might be released among us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.